Welcome to another episode of the Cornette Northern California Chapter Podcast. This is Melissa Pacey, Principal at HGA Architects, member of the Leadership Council of Northern California, and your host today. Our podcast today features our amazing young leader group. They hold a quarterly lunch with a leader, and today we are lucky enough to listen in. Our leader today is Instacart's Director of Real Estate and Workplace, Warren Kleben. Warren brings an extraordinarily unique and well-rounded background of managing facilities for multiple unicorns that brought him to where he is today. With a degree in international relations from the University of Wisconsin, Warren started his career in the law industry. He broke into the technology and startup scene with Automatic in 2012 during a period of rapid growth between their Series B and Series C venture funding rounds. While working there, he was the real estate and facilities manager. From there, Warren continued to impact fast-growing companies such as Fastly, Blue Bottle Coffee, and Unity Technologies. At Unity, Warren's impact grew as the company expanded globally after receiving over 500 million total in Series C and D rounds, including a major headquarters relocation project. Now at Instacart, his expertise is shown every day as Warren and his team empower over 1,000 Instacart employees to be the leader in online groceries and one of the fastest growing companies in e-commerce. I'm sitting here with Cameron Love to introduce the Young Leader series to us and answer a couple of questions. So hello and welcome to all here with us at Instacart HQ and to those listening at home to this edition of Cornet Northern California Young Leaders Lunch with a Leader. Uh, I'm Cameron Love, co-chair of the Special Events Committee, uh, and I personally love these lunches. I think that there's not a better way for our Coronet Young Leaders to engage, uh, and uh, I'm so excited for the opportunity we have today. Um, joining us shortly will be Warren Cleveland with Instacart. He's the Director of Real Estate and Workplace and our gracious host today. Uh, Warren's got a great story to share, uh, an impressive resume of driving real change, taking on challenging projects, and Im impacting teams at some of the most dynamic co companies in our region. Um, Warren's led facilities at Automatic, Fastly, Blue Bottle Coffee, Unity Technologies, and now Instacart. Uh, a special thank you is in order to Instacart uh, and the team here, including Jamie Pang, uh, and all of your help uh, for organizing an amazing lunch and providing us this space, so thank you. Uh, we've got about 45 minutes scheduled together, uh, so I'll dive into some questions we've compiled, and then uh, we'll have some time for some more dynamic Q&A afterwards. Sound good? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Warren, that wasn't too awkward for you, no, wasn't it? Was great. I awesome. Loved it. So we're here in a room full of young leaders from all different walks of the industry, uh, service providers uh, from various trades, whether that be engineers, project managers, architects, space planners, some brokers like myself, even a few end users. Uh, but a common theme, I think, for the majority of us is that we all have very different stories and uh, about how we got into the industry. And I'd be interested to share kind of a little bit your background and how you found your path here. Sure. So, hi, everybody. Welcome to Instacart. It's so nice to have everybody. It's always great when we can get together and meet people who kind of do things we do or similar that we do in places that aren't, you know, a brokerage room or a sales pitch. But... Uh, so I moved to San Francisco in 2004. Um, I had started a company, then moved to Los Angeles, where we didn't. We had built a sunscreen distribution product, but unfortunately, it was, was not successful. 
So I moved here and, and you know, kind of found the first job I could find. And in 2004, I don't know if those of you who are here, uh, it was a ghost town. I mean, San Francisco was, the, the tech boom ended in 2000, kind of went through 2001, 2002. You started to see everything really shutting down. You couldn't rent a rider truck if you tried. And then in 04, it was really whatever you could find. There were no tech companies. There was no tech jobs. It didn't even exist, right? That was all for the Valley. Uh, so I worked at a law firm and I had had a background as a kid of working on computers and kind of had some video editing skills and a variety of different elements. So I worked at a law firm and I, I did what was called a trial technology specialist where I basically made PowerPoints, made presentations, edited deposition video. You know, I became friendly with the office manager at the time, which was the only title for anything in our work. <laughs> and uh, we, our lease was, uh, was lapsing. We, we needed to renew. We needed to decide what we were going to do. We were in 225 Bush, which I'm sure most of you know, was part of the old Standard Oil uh, swath of real estate that they kind of owned four or five of those buildings right around there. Um, you can still see some of the chevrons in the building uh, if you take a look. But uh, I got involved. I started learning through the office manager what we were looking for, kind of what, what were our levers. And I found the, the process interesting, right? Like kind of thinking about what is our firm doing? When are we doing it? What are our needs? Um, and at that time, we were a law firm. It was still kind of moving out of the paper, uh, paper full environment. So we used to do a lot of document um, review, right, which was actually a physical process at that point. There was no optical character recognition. There was none of that. We had rooms full of lawyers who looked at paper all day. Um, so we wound up taking an extra floor, and then they gave us a storage floor because buildings like that have them that are kind of encumbered height, but you can fit in some uh, storage racks. And we did that deal at about, I think it was $16.50 a foot in 2004 at 225 Bush. I think the- 85 now. Yeah, ah, maybe, you know, <laughs> who knows. But that really kind of sparked my interest in kind of the real estate side. And then from there, you know, had a variety of opportunities as lawyers do, they like fighting, so the firm split up. Some lawyers went this way, some lawyers went that way. I went some of the ones going that way, and it turned out they needed an office, they needed someone to work on kind of how, how they are, what their office is gonna be like. And I feel like this is a little bit full circle in that we went to one Embarcadero where the owner's Boston Properties, and at that time it was uh, similar to kind of many of the products that we see today, which was, you know, they opened a book up and showed you 12 different options of what they could do for you. Do you want the modern office? Do you want the Art Deco lawyer office? I think we went with the Walnut, um, which was really kind of uh, the, 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 felt classy at the yeah. time, you know, and uh, built that one out. And then from there, kind of reuniting back with my passion for technology, um, found my way to WordPress, which is, uh, well, Automatic, which is the parent company of WordPress.com, and started building things and sort of seeing how different the world was as tech really started to come back into the city. That's great. So you sought out the opportunity instead of kind of falling into it? Yeah, I mean, there was, you know, in that time, I would say it was, it was a tough business to be in in San Francisco. There was not tremendous number of jobs. There weren't a lot of tangential jobs. So I knew in my heart of hearts that I was not going to take the LSAT and become a lawyer, uh, much to my mom's chagrin, who I hope is listening. Um, or 
And so I, I looked for something that I found interest in and I found real estate interesting. And through that, I've, I really found the process of um, making spaces for people to be able to do their best as something that I find more and more interesting because it's, it's evolving, right? You know, what might be the best for you today or in this moment might not be the best for you tomorrow or even this afternoon. And I feel as if that is currently our need or our goal is to continue to develop spaces that really help work in concert with the people who are in them every day. That's great. It's a perfect lead into what I wanted to ask you next. Next is what you enjoy most about the role. Um, I met you about uh, a month ago for the first time and we had a quick chat, but my takeaway was that I think you love solving incredibly hard problems. Um, is that what you love about this or is there something else? Is it, is it truly in, impacting the way people work? I think it's impacting. I mean, I, I would say I don't solve really hard problems. I'm not sending anything to the moon. We're not <laughs> looking for Mars. Uh, there's no refractal or t t telemetry involved. So I'd say I, I like the complexity of issues, mostly because there's so many you know, flavors and variations of, of what our work can be about, right? We can dive into the construction design, development, acoustics, uh, elemental design, lighting. You can talk about kind of how your people function within that space. What is hospitality? What are our food and beverage programs? Like all of these various things that come together. I like having a finger on the pulse of all of those things and being able to have them fit together to fit the, the company's needs, desires, and cultural outputs to do the best with what you have. Your style as a um, kind of individual and the way you interact with your people, are you more kind of in the weeds or do you sense yourself as being a motivator and uh, kind of from a, you know, a 10,000 feet? I'm super serious. Like I just, I'm so intense. <laughs> I think I sense some I really, uh, sarcasm there. I really try to just, you know, we do four stand-ups a day and we're, I would say uh, my my general style is trust the people who you work with. I certainly you know, can dive bomb into what you're doing if something isn't going right or if there's a need for it, but really have to give people the trust to be successful and also continue to push them to push themselves to learn something new, to think about a different avenue of which you think about your work. Like I think so many times throughout my career pro progression, I thought, and in life in general, I thought this is the KPI, right? This is what success is. And then sometimes you reach it or sometimes you get near it and then you're like, that is absolutely wrong. And I have been looking at the wrong thing the whole time. Um, you know, just an example of that was, so when I worked at Blue Bottle Coffee, we, we would do a pro forma. Now, many of us, and then until then, I'd never worked somewhere where like the money had to come out of the store, right? Like the expectation is, your design construction project is part of a general package that determines if or not this asset is successful. So that was new for me. And so we built this pro forma and we would talk about what our, what our costs would be, real estate costs, build out costs, ongoing maintenance costs, et cetera. And I was so adamant about us trying to hit this number, right? I said, I would talk about how we were on a runway and we were a plane. And if we fuel up this plane with too much fuel, we'll never get off the runway. Um, and I was looking at it from the wrong perspective, right? The company was thinking about exiting to a different organization, right? We were building a brand, we weren't building stores. And that was where I was really having some inability to understand kind of the difference between the two. 
And so it's given me some pause for thought as I think about it. what are you building and what are you building it for? And what, what is really the needed metric to look at for it? That's great. I think we're all interested in kind of this industry because you can work on something, uh, you can engage with someone, and there's uh, an end game that you get to see physically in person. So seeing physical space, seeing the transformation of uh, people and teams in those spaces is, I think, one of the biggest reasons why we love what we do. And you've led some significant projects. Obviously, I think ones that are in more recent uh, memory, the Unity HQ uh, on 3rd and dealing with historical buildings and uh, obviously a, a big relocation and build out for Instacart here. Can you share some of the biggest challenges you faced during those and then um, you know, talking about how you're able to resolve and deliver after facing those challenges? You know, an old super on a job probably 10 years ago, you know, I love them, they've got the broom, they're, they're talking to you and they're telling you the key to success is expectations. But um, what they don't tell you or what's often changing is that those expectations are constantly changing and that your user base is changing. Yeah. Um, uh, with the historic building, with Unity, I think the, the real difference, was, the real challenges were we were building our tenant improvement out as they were finishing up their historical uh, core and shell, which was challenging to do work at the same time. Different contractors, that, that pose a particular challenge. And I'd say in general, landlord relations and having that right relationship with a landlord is always, and in, for this market in particular, continually a, a challenging environment. Um, from a design construction standpoint, I'd say, you know, I think what's driving a lot of us in this market or, and in most of the markets that companies are going to from here is cost. Mm -hmm. You know, there is the expectation that you are going to try to create some unique but unified spaces between your different offices and there's a desire to hit a certain level or, or, or differentiator between the two or kind of how you're going to celebrate that local city. Um, and that becomes a design challenge. But then the design challenge ultimately right now, I think is always relating back to the budget. You know, um, you know I just read the 2019 Outlook construction pricing and, and you're seeing and, you know, if, if you drew a heat map of the, the cities that companies from the Bay Area go to, they're all on the rise as well, and I think they've all kind of caught on to the idea that we're moving there for a variety of reasons. And I'd say having to express or explain or create the level of contingency required when you're doing your annual planning process is, is the biggest challenge. Like with Unity, we would have never been able to finish that project at the price that we finished it at in today's market. It would be at least uh, twenty percent upcharge to that, mostly because of material types and styles of construction. You know, you know, like a trimless reveal on drywall, you know, would be extremely expensive in today's market because it's so labor specific, not mm -hmm. necessarily product. So, was the expectation going into that project met? Then, do you feel like the the work product was um, what you've expected? Yeah, I think. The product came out really well. I think everyone was pretty happy. There's always the things, I, I've never been happy with anything I've ever done in my life. <laughs> you know, it's both like a blessing and a curse to the idea of, you know, I think about oftentimes, I don't know if anyone here uses Seat Guru. It was hot maybe 10 years ago, but I still look at it to see, uh, you know, it kind of does like green, yellow, red seats on the plane. So you can kind of choose the, oh, I don't want to sit next to the bathroom. <laughs> I, when I think about my workplaces, I, there, I don't, I, I really, really want to try to avoid any yellow, red seats. 
And in those types of projects, you know, there's the things you don't think about, right? Like this person sits under a VAV. I don't want to sit under a VAV. Do you want to sit under one? And like things like that, where I think we came really close, but there will always be trade-offs. And those are sometimes the things that you're just not going to pick up in the design process or the change and you're not even aware of it. You know, you're just the engineer's like, oh, this changed. And you're like, okay, you know, fine. Here's a question that I think a lot of the business development focused people in the room might be interested in hearing. Uh, first part of the question, uh, what qualities do you look for in your vendor partners? And then the second part of that is any advice to those business developers on how to effectively engage with decision makers like yourself or buyers of mm -hmm. services? Yeah, I mean, I look for for partners, and I think it's often times challenging when you you're not looking for that in that moment, and yet you still want to have information about kind of something that's changing or something that's different. Um, but it is hard to weed through the noise. I would say, you know, on a given week, probably a hundred plus emails from people you don't know, contacts on LinkedIn. I would say one thing is definitely don't call me because oftentimes it's like a number I don't know and I'll think it's my kid's school and I'll pick it up and I'll be very unhappy that it's not my kid. I'll be both be nervous that it's my kid's school and then very unhappy with you that it's you calling me and it's, <laughs> it's not a, uh, an emergency. I definitely look for partnership and value as to what we're going to do and really clear understanding of what the offering is. I think the challenge right now with certain vendors is you're just not sure what the offer is or if it's a, like a light variation on what they were offering last week or um, you know their business model has changed. So you know providing some email correspondence could be okay. Um, we definitely always appreciate coffee and lottery tickets just showing up. Those things are helpful. Um, fungible assets, Bitcoin, crypto, um, you know. But in all seriousness, I would say as we start looking at our teams, we're, we're shrink like, and especially among startups, the real estate function is shrinking and becoming more of an API function where we are not best suited to build out all of the tools that we need to be successful. Um, so understanding who can partner with us and truly be integrated and be integrated at a level where they've got a core expertise, we can bring them into our stack and that they can function and provide value and then be able to communicate with the other members of that stack would be, is, is the most helpful. And, and there are a couple vendors in the room here who have been able to provide at that level. That's great. Next question is leading a little bit towards workplace strategy and I think it's a uh, a term that uh, is thrown around a lot, but not everyone knows what it means or it may mean different things. What does it, it mean to you? I think it means data to me. I think right. it's the way you analyze data. But I mean, generally speaking, I think the way we work is always changing. I mean, you hit it, it could change at different points of the day, even for different employees within your organization. Um, but I think tech companies have been uh, at the forefront of this kind of innovative uh, thinking toward the way we work and you know, from a micro perspective of just different types of physical space mm -hmm. which you you know kind of hit on a little bit earlier but also on a macro scale of you know going to more flexible workplace options like your co-working and in, in certain ancillary markets but I think the question to you is how much focus do you and your team apply to the data that you may get back from either sensors or uh, employ, employee engagement surveys and then if you do if you do care about that data can you give us some examples of how you've utilized it to make a positive change? 
Yeah, I mean, here at Instacart, we're, we're not particularly a monitored environment. We, we do have some badge data. We are definitely surveying the, the, the teams and workplaces, but surveillance is also a dirty word, but we're not currently monitoring at that level. Uh, at other organizations, I mean, at Unity, we did some, some Wi-Fi heat mapping, I think was a really good, non-invasive way to understand how and where people are moving because everyone's got their, their phones on them at all times. Um, you know, you're constantly pinging all of those towers. I think, you know, adding all the sensors to under the desks and some of the conference rooms doesn't, or in the seat cushions, isn't, isn't really drawing the right data. And, you know, I was, I was watching a friend who's a designer give a talk and they were saying, people don't make data decisions. They make decisions based on a story that someone told them about the data. Um, you know, if we if we pulled in lots of data and we all believed what the data was, I can I can show you a video clip where Hillary Clinton was definitely going to be our president, and nobody thought anywhere near that this would be the case. So, you know, it's storytelling. Um, but I think for us, the right story is kind of the flow of space where people are or are not going, and then trying to figure out why that's happening. Because every square foot is so expensive at this point um, that if we're not increasing the value or the use case or the usages for it, um, then we're not getting all of our value out of our property. Uh, so I'd say one of the things that we've, that I've previously done is we took some of that data in, badge data, timing, um, really turned some spaces into activity-based workspace, done some more team rooms, uh, trying to create different ideas a about how people work because we do get a lot of feedback of like, it's noisy, I don't feel like I can't have a call, I feel like my team doesn't have a place to be, right? There is this desire for this sense of being in the workplace and how and where we can create that for groups of people to do. Um, so we, you know, we manage a couple team rooms at this, uh, at this site that we've allowed teams to set up and kind of experiment with having a space for them to go un unbooked, unassigned, but it's to their team only. Um, I think that's been really successful. Because as I think about workplace strategy, you know, when you look at, we all, we all do some workplace archeology span when we do touring and you see uh, 20 year old spaces, 10 year old spaces, 15 year old spaces, and you can you know, look at them and see how different they are. And, but that was either the zeitgeist of the time or that was a very clear, like, numerically metric driven design and development uh, and I think we're going to just keep changing that as as time goes on um, but I do worry about how much data you collect about people and at the end we all collect a bunch of data somebody makes a dashboard somebody creates a deck but was that what level of of inputs did we gather? Were we looking for the right signals? Did was a lot of it noise? You know, I, I think I always want to reserve the right to be wrong. I think most people in this industry do, so I get a little bit concerned about like overly analyzing or overly censoring or monitoring. Personally, where are you most effective with your work? What type of space? I mean, I like an office, right? <laughs> I just feel, it just feels right. But, uh, oh, and that was the other thing about that law firm is everyone, everyone had an office. I, I, I had two desks, I had two computers, I had a return. It was amazing <laughs> um, because there was just so much square footage. But I do think that there, I think right now, the, what I think is really effective is giving people a smaller desk, uh, but also giving them additional spaces to be. 
I think having activity-based rooms, having quiet zones, having spaces that aren't your desk to work at is really helpful. Like we have a quiet room library. I think there are certain people that are gonna find themselves in those situations. I think uh, there's a lot of different spaces and you should provide for movement throughout the day. Um, because uh, yeah, standard benching is really hard, especially if you don't, if you're not gonna acoustically attenuate down. Uh, white noise is so painful, but I really would like to implement more just acoustic capture like elements that can re reduce sound or absorb it um, because anything over you know mid 60s or even 60 decibels really starts to be challenging um, and for me like you know I'm super uh, I have you know trouble with sounds and with light and with words are really trying to reduce kind of all of those visual impacts or, or audio impacts so that it's a quieter, cleaner space for people to be in. Awesome. Well, why don't we open it up to the audience, Q&A. <laughs> in your experience, what are causing the most red and yellow seats? Uh, adjacencies, uh, bathroom adjacencies, uh, you know, adjacencies to walkways, perimeter seating, um, Definitely mechanical lighting. Uh, I'd say those are kind of the big ones uh, because you know anything that's not going to be next to a window. I mean, the open floor plan, your your absolute green seats are going to be the ones that are up against the window, uh, have natural light. You get a little bit of extra space to store your stuff. It's kind of like the bulkhead uh, where you're maybe getting some of these perimeter units, or there's a gap because of the doghouse for the power. But really try to not put people in sight line to a bathroom door if we don't have to. Um, and or on a, a heavy core perimeter without some type of, you know, Phil's felt or acoustic barrier. So I'm sure that in your experience, like you probably had some effect on how budgets are created for upcoming projects or whatnot. Um, but when there is, say, a discrepancy in the budget that really conflicts with some of the needs that you need to accomplish, um, what's in your experience, what's been your, your play with like the CFO going, going to someone like that and, and getting them to, to increase the budget? Yeah. I mean, that's always the most painful. Like I, I would, I never want to go back and ask for money again. I really, in my experience, have tried to build in really heavily, uh, budgets that are clear but kind of offer the idea that we're going to try to get reduce this as we move over time. Some people that really is not a successful technique with um, and then also I think it depends at your organizational level where you're drawing the lines between where workplace ends and all of the various other what I call carbon molecule items fall under, right? Is the IT rack and equipment and cabling my expense or is that IT's or infrastructure? What I really try to get to is what is our true all-in, all-in number? Um, you know, my parents, you know, and a lot of stuff comes back to your parents in general, but my parents are cruise ship people, right? Because they like the idea that they're not going to have to pay another penny at the end of, or, or for this experience. They know exactly what it's going to cost. Um, and so I've tried to tailor that because that was my childhood's experience of like, what will this really cost? Um, I think some people that really is challenging in this market to today. So I've done some of the budgeting where I'm removing graphics and design. I'm removing 
um, some of those elements. But when I do come to an impasse, like let's say for example, you know, we have a discrepancy with a landlord on whether or not or where the air is going to come from in a particular space, and it turns out, you know, there is going to be a significant HVAC charge to you. Uh, I'm going to gather all the facts. I am going to create my plan to uh, mediate this issue as best as possible, but I am going to clearly indicate that there will be an upcharge and that this is the range. I try to give a range as best as possible um, because, again, going back a third time is really unpleasant. And, you know, I've been there as well. And what you don't want to do is, you know, I think a lot of times the reaction is like, immediately like understand and try to get a cost out there and like comfort. It's like these things. Most of our projects are fairly glacial compared to the speed of our companies are working at. So I'd say really, really understand what this you know, for lack of a better word, shit sandwich is going to be made of. And so then you can accurately under provide like what the next steps will look like. So take your time is what I would say. Um, it's great to hear what you're doing with the workplace and supporting people. Having worked with quite a lot of tech companies now, there's, you know, challenges around extreme growth while space is at a premium and you're running out of space and then it's underutilized. Is this something that Instacart experiences and, and you know, is it something that you're managing with creating better workplaces for people? Yeah, I mean, there's, we, we move in big chunks. Our traditional leasing moves in big chunks and utilization is hopefully, in your best case scenario, kind of at a light hockey stick growth up and to the right. Uh, so what we try to capture is, uh, oh, and what we want to try to do, or what I try to do, is ex is express a yearly cost per seat or per employee. So you create like a, a little more of a melange rate. Um, because what you want to say and what you try to push for is like, what is our desired level of capacity for our desired level of team growth and how we're going to move them around? Um, I'd say, you know, at Instacart and a couple and many companies today, we, we, we're unable to keep up. The seats are more expensive than ever. And I think what we're, we're looking to do is instead of having underutilization is there are a lot more choices in today's market for short term or for flex space or for the opportunity to say, well, we don't know what a three year uh, headcount plan is. I don't think anyone really does in today's market and what we're doing. Um, I think so from that perspective, we are looking towards and we have flexed into various um, uh, alternative workspaces using WeWork, Notel, Novell, Convene, um, various flavors in whatever market to, to A, test out a market, B, reduce our capital risk, and, and C, try to maintain kind of the level that we've been providing. I was curious, uh, when it comes to people actually going into your offices, they have their own desk currently. Have you been looking towards eventually going to like a flex seating model? I, I know a lot of companies are. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've talked about it. It's really, I mean, an unpleasant topic. And I think I've, I've yet to deploy it in a situation where it's not a short-term fix. Um, and kind of with the promise that something good is coming and that will be growing, um, people want a place to be. And you know, we've done cubbies, we've done advanced lockers with charging. Um, I think you know the scores will always come back that I don't have a place to be or feel 
less good about it. I think that's where we would try to go to kind of activity-based and or team room uh, with some seats assigned to it. I think having the physical space that's your team's might be, um, might be a, a solve for us in that like if a recruiting had what they would say is like their space where it's like set up and, and furnished to their level and then they've got an adjacent six or eight desks and there is a space for you to be a human, to have a jacket that you're gonna put somewhere or you're gonna store your, your workout clothes. I think we wanna make sure that we're providing some of those things, but we are intending to continue to be one-to-one indefinitely. I would imagine you work pretty frequently with a lot of people outside of the real estate workplace group. How do you like best foster and what have those ideal working relationships look like with sales, engineering, team leads that you're eventually building and operating the space for? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's incredibly important to have those intakes and oftentimes it looks like we just ha- sit down with an architect, we talk about you know, some blue sky stuff, and then you never hear from them again. Um, When you're actually running and operating the workplace, it's having your team have really, really good relationships with those leaders because there's still so much work moving forward from that. So I encourage my team at the kind of workplace operational level to foster those relationships, have regular meetings that someone wants to go to, right? Nobody wants to go to a space planning meeting, but if it's a coffee and we're buying, you know, it really increases our ability to have a conversation about, oh, and by the way, your team is moving. You know, <laughs> no, nobody likes that story and it doesn't, and it really doesn't hit over email. So I think maintaining strong relationships between the workplace operations team and all of the team leads so that they are advocates and understanding what our constraints are, and especially in this market where people and space is at a very high premium, very difficult to get and very costly to get, um, a relationship can go a really long way. And I think it's about doing it in a uh, non-confrontational way or a uh, um, non-conference room meeting way, and then going from there to try to soften it because we need to humanize the conversation for them. Uh, because pe- people don't want to move. I mean, no, nobody in this room is like, you know what I want to do when I get home, I want to move. Um, and for them, it's so much is attached to it, whereas I feel like oftentimes in our world, we can turn it into a commodity, right? We're doing a 200-seat shift. We're doing 800 restack. We'll just say all these words, but for, you know, gym and accounting, that's like a Walmart plant won't have the sunlight it wants anymore. <laughs> or I'm gonna be too far from the Waterloo's. So, uh, but we can't necessarily consider all those things, but what we try to do is stay interactive with them and keep them apprised of of what may or may not be going on. It doesn't always, I can tell you very candidly, it's not always successful. And then there's that moment when they're very clear that like, actually, no, you're not gonna do this to me and I'm gonna go to somebody else and try to tell them that you're not doing that. But, you know, we have to, keep trying to have, make sure everybody knows that we are a cohesive unit and that we're a team as a company and that we can't always help everyone or make everybody happy all the time.
So oftentimes with trends, you see them start swinging back the other direction. Uh, and so I'm kind of curious if you've noticed people who are starting to, you know, want their private office space. And even if they did, if that became like an overwhelming demand, would it be feasible uh, given the premium on real estate? I mean, definitely not feasible. I think what you're seeing is this change to, because we didn't build any of these spaces with offices in mind, you're seeing this takeover of conference rooms, which I think is pervasive throughout the startup or kind of open floor plan where you know, somebody came from Google and th that's what they had there. And we're just going to make them happy now kind of thing. Um, but you are starting to see that. You're starting to see certain levels or, or again, what I would like to pitch it more as is, is a team room as opposed to like a particular person's space um, because we are, we are still selling the idea of flat for the most part um, in, in most organizations that kind of go to traditional to, tradi to traditional benching. Um, so it kind of starts to set, or the optics are not great on it. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely seeing that desire for regular, known, and comfortable space for particular individuals at many organizations. Going back to early in your career, I know you had some really, <clears throat> excuse me, some really interesting experience in Uganda, in Africa, and would love to hear I think that's a really interesting part of your background and would love to hear more about that and how it's impacted your viewpoint, excuse me, your viewpoint and how you approach your work today. Yeah, I mean, uh, so I, I moved to Uganda in 2008 uh, and I was there on a service project with a non-governmental organization that focused on uh, sexual health for adolescents in rural areas. Um, part of my task was an office management and IT upgrade to the building in which the NGOs were run out of in Kampala. And man, I, nobody liked me after the second day. So at that time, God, this dates me, but no smartphones. Uh, and then Uganda at that point, or East Africa, did not have a undersea cable for internet. So all traffic went via satellite. So it was very, very expensive and very, very slow. Um, and the lady who ran the NGO asked me, she said, why is our internet so slow? And, uh, you know, I can't really even send an email out. So, you know, I look at the network, I look at the traffic, and A, never ever donate an old computer to a developing world. Like, you're basically crippling people. <laughs> so it was this, like, patched up garbage network of old computers and, like, beat up stuff. And the way that the server worked was, it was not one that could go like uh, throttle or modulate who had access. So people were coming in early, turning on Yahoo Music, or getting on a variety of different services and just like eating all of the bandwidth. So I was like, oh, this is the problem. Um, you know, let's just turn off all these services from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. And if people wanted to use them, they could come in after. I was universally hated after this moment. <laughs> Everyone hated me. MySpace, you couldn't get on your, you couldn't get on your friend's page. Um, but, you know, about that, I'd say what it taught me was just kind of like a really, um, you know, we, we are so often not resource constrained for a lot of resources here. Um, it kind of was like an Apollo uh, 11 or 13 moment for me, uh, which I, I often use the analogy of that movie of kind of, you have a, like a significant resource constraint and how do you solve the problem. Um, 
and thought I was doing the right thing. I really wasn't. Um, but it, it was an interesting and different perspective to see, you know, how that work, how the work they were doing was kind of after that, how do I redevelop or, you know, change relationships that were particularly strained. And ultimately, it was a really good experience for me to see kind of a very, very different landscape for technology workers because we primarily produced a, a radio show and then we partnered with Google um, to, to do a uh, SMS sexual health uh, message board. So basically, if, if you were an adolescent teen in rural Uganda or Juba or to the north, you could text in a question for free and the database would send out an answer and then G uh, GSM locate you or GPS locate you via GSM to your closest potential clinic. So it was all very interesting and very different. And I think a, a getting a wealth of different like cultural and lifestyle experiences is incredibly important to my career. It's just seeing people from a different perspective. You had mentioned something about human capital and difficulty, especially in this market. So I was curious kind of what role your people org plays in your real estate conversation. Uh, about like uh, recruiting or? F as far as space, so looking at both people as an asset and then the physical asset itself and how those two are married, if at all. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not really sure I'm understanding. Is it that how our HR team influences the different, like the how we would design or how we would think about people being here? Both. I mean, we definitely, we definitely talk about being or creating parity or even improving on what other companies or peer companies are offering. Um, and then we do partner quite a bit on kind of the crystal ball of headcount planning. Um, but I would say they don't, they don't really provide a tremendous amount of input at this or about kind of design or space or square feet per person. Um, more that, you know, there's just a general desire to be uh, kind of making the offerings that other that, that that I know to be best or what I know to be market trend to be what we're offering our other what we're offering others in the market. Did that answer the question? I wasn't hundred percent sure. Mm -hmm. it, it, it basically they're the ear to what's happening in market, so you can say competitive from an offering standpoint. So yes, thank you. Well, thank you, Warren. What a great conversation. Super insightful. I think uh, we're all really appreciative of your time and uh, your insight. So, and, th and thanks, everybody, for coming. It's always nice to see a bunch of faces. And please enjoy something else to eat. And if you want to chat, let me know, and we'll go from there. Thank you. Thank you. If you like our podcast, please subscribe on iTunes and share on social media. We'd love to keep this conversation going and want to hear what's on your mind. As always, please share your thoughts and comments on our LinkedIn page under the post for this episode. I'm Melissa Pacey, and I will talk to you next time.